Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. everyone. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank Jane for her contribution in memory of her friend Michelle, who died by suicide three years ago. I know my podcast touches a lot of you who suffered the loss of a loved one to suicide. If you'd like to join Jane in remembering someone, you can make a donation in their honor on my website. You will see that I have just created a new page called Memorials which will be used to acknowledge your contribution, but of course only if you want your name to be public. Otherwise, it will remain confidential. It's my way to provide a space for those who would like to share their stories because sharing can be healing. On the memorials page, you will find instructions on how to send me the information you want to share. To donate, just go to understandsuicide.com and hit the donate button. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my podcast and my YouTube channel. So my guest today is Eduardo Duran. He's a clinical psychologist and he works extensively with historical trauma and particularly the indigenous people. We know that their trauma comes from many, many generations. He has written books about this. He's been treating this population for many years. And I'm so honored to have you here with us today, Eduardo. Welcome to the podcast. Well, honored to be asked. And thank you for doing uh, this amazing work that you're doing and for finding, finding us people out there in the remote mm-hmm. area of the world to talk to not as remote. You're in Montana, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why in Montana? Why? Uh, oh, yeah. well, it's really a beautiful place. I don't know if you've ever been. And where I live, it's in a valley surrounded by mountains. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly uh, beautiful place. And uh, of course, all of it is indigenous land, but this specifically where I'm at was called the Valley of the Flowers. <clears throat> and uh, and mm-hmm. so it has a history of nonviolence that goes way back when a female voice from the sky told the tribes here to stop fighting and spilling blood into the ground. Mm, yes. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's a, yeah. so Montana, what the, does that mean mountain? Yeah. Montana. Yeah, because yeah, in Portuguese it's the same word, it's montanha. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that means mountain for us too. So, Eduardo, thank you. The first thing I want to ask you is to please correct me if I say anything that is not language appropriate. Because like you, I, I have been studying and I, I have been trained in Western society, Western schools. So, and I know how important language is. So, please, if I say something that you feel that is not right, it doesn't land in well, do correct me, okay? Yeah, I'm sure you'll do everything perfect. 
<laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know based on what you thought that, but anyway. Uh, let's let's first start talking about your story, your own story. Um, did you always want to treat this population? Was it something that was in your mind when you started uh, no, your career? No, uh, I never had a plan. You know, growing up, we grew up very poor and, uh, <clears throat> you know, wasn't supposed to be able to go to college. So because of that, I, I went into the military and, uh, and, you know, spent six years in the military during the Vietnam conflict. And uh, after I got out, I started taking a course here, a course there. And, uh, you know, and after taking a couple of psychology courses, I realized that maybe I can figure out why my family was the way it was. And, uh, and so I kept getting, and pretty soon had to declare a major and then, you know, got a degree and then a master's degree. And, and like, but it was never a, a, a trajectory planned. And, not by me anyway, it was planned by the mystery, mm -hmm. but I was just fumbling through life. <laughs> mm -hmm. it just sort of happened. It did. So you, you trained uh, in Montana, that's, that's where you went to school? Oh no, uh, I started in California actually, in San Diego, San Diego State, that's where I was stationed, and, uh, and got my master's also in California and also the, the doctorate, mm -hmm. and so, uh, yeah, that's where I did uh, most most of the formal training, and then the what I call the real training happened from uh, native elders and people that are wise in in that way. And uh, I'm really grateful that they uh, helped save my soul from Western philosophy and Western psychology. <laughs> wow, I, we're going to cover that, and we have a lot to talk about when it comes to soul wound that's what uh -huh. you write about yeah but when when did the shift happen when you said okay i'm going to focus on this population the shift of, the, the shift of your career when you said okay i'm going to base my career on treating this historical trauma again accidental and uh, i was working in a in a native community as an intern <clears throat> and uh, that's when uh, an elder requested to see me and uh, and whenever their request came, my initial response was, I don't want to see him. And I, it created anxiety. And I had no, never seen him, didn't know who it was. But it was persistent. And, and finally, you know, I asked, well, why doesn't he come to see me then? Well, he couldn't. He was paralyzed. And, uh, <clears throat> and so then the way it worked, because I didn't want to see him, they finally just took me to see him. And uh, it was in the first few seconds in his presence that he he cracked my cosmic egg. I mean, the very first thing he said to me, because, uh, you know, here he's in his bed, he's like a skeleton, and there's bags collecting body fluids hanging on the bed. It's a very poor shack. And I'm really feeling anxious wow. and panicky because I, I can't. Wow, you know what? I'm feeling that too right now. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and of course, I'm the only mental health provider there's an intern so i have to stay and pretend that i know what i'm doing and uh, as soon as i walked in he laughed and the very first words he said to me don't think that way there's other realities and so i'm trying to diagnose him and i thought if he thinks that he knows what i'm thinking he must be really crazy because that's ideas of reference and he can't <clears throat> but then he laughed again 
And he asked me a question that made no sense until many years later. And he says, well, have you ever seen the colors? And I'm like, what? You know, and my mind. I, You're so confused by then, right? <laughs> and then he laughed again. And, and by now the panic is becoming stronger and stronger. I'm getting dizzy. And he says, well, let me show them to you then. And I says, no, sir, I don't want you to show me anything. And, uh, and literally, I almost lost consciousness at that moment. And all I could do is run out of that shack and never want to see him. But right as I'm at the door, he says, I want you to come back and see me again. <laughs> and, and I was like, I wish he hadn't said that because I kind of have. You know, mm -hmm. if he's patient, I need to be nice and polite. But, uh, yeah, it was... And what I realized in retrospect is that it was during that first encounter that he gave me that spiritual transmission that overwhelmed the ego. And that's why the ego wanted to just go to sleep. Of course. Yeah. I, had, I had no context for what was happening process wise. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that was powerful, huh? Yeah. Talk about transference. I'm nervous. I'm very nervous right now. <laughs> and even uh, every time I tell that story, it, it just, I could feel it all over again, the, uh, just how powerful that process was. And, uh, and, and of course, I didn't know who he was. I thought he's just this old guy and, mm -hmm. you know, he wants company. And, and so I went back and so I continued seeing him pretty soon. I was comfortable with him. And every time I'd see him, he would ask me what I was learning and he would always laugh. And so this happened for three years, and, and make a long story short, on uh, June 18th of, I think, 1984, somewhere in there, I went to see him. And because, you know, I visited him pretty regular now, I, I had developed an affection for him, and he wasn't a patient. I didn't know what he was because he spoke in riddles that I didn't understand. And he mm -hmm. was just crazy stuff. And I thought, oh, the community thinks he's okay, so I guess he's not crazy. And so... Uh, I went to see him and he's sitting out on this little porch in his wheelchair wearing a headband and a brand new shirt. And he was looking very regal. He was just sitting like this. And so I sat on the stairs next to him, both of us facing the same direction. And he proceeded to then talk to me in very uh, precise, rational language. Mm -hmm. Explaining sort of what, how to understand what he'd been saying. And at that time, I thought, man, this guy, I was a little bit upset because uh, he's been messing with my head. He could have talked to me like this the first time because I know he can. Mm -hmm. And I waited for three years. But what I didn't know is that two days later, which happened to be the solstice, very holy, sacred day, uh, he, they brought him his altar, which happened to be a pipe, mm -hmm. and he smoked his pipe he left into the spirit world. Wow. So then I knew that I had been in the presence of really holy holiness. And so the two days before I, I called that, he gave me the Rosetta Stone to interpret all the other stuff that he'd been saying for three years. For years and years, you know, there was endless depth to that. And here so, you are. Yeah, here I am talking to you from another <laughs> part of the world. Indigenous uh, mm -hmm. people, probably, in other parts of the world. And so they'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you, you said uh, they understand what we're talking about. And one of my ideas today is to educate my listeners on not just language, but to understand where we go wrong when we approach this population. One of the concepts that I really, I was, I was very drawn to, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> I've been taking this class online with, I don't know if you know him, John Somers Flanagan. He's special, yeah, he's specializing in treating suicidal patients. And oh. one of, and I'm doing this class online and I'm, because he, it's real se sessions with, with clients. Oh. And one of the clients is indigenous. And oh. I remember when I was reading your book, I, I could just see him, all his struggles. And one of the things that he mentioned all the time was, we are warriors. We are warriors. And I said, wow, what does that mean to be a warrior? That's, so I did some, some research at the time when I was taking the class. And I think, I believe that's how I found you. <laughs> He said, what are warriors? What, what does he, but, but that's how uneducated we are in their language, right? So can you explain yeah. to my audience what a warrior is? What I understand is that it's just the idea that you are, and that's not just men, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you are here to sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Yeah, it has to do it? with the giving and, and doing everything that we can in our power to to protect, you know, the, the sacred ones, the children, protect the earth, protect uh, the animals, protect the resources. And, uh, and so it has very little to do in the Western idea of the warrior going out there and killing people to take their stuff, you know, which is usually what Western war, what, you know, the history of Western war has been is just to go and conquer land and, and, and accumulate. And, uh, and in the warrior tradition, even though there were scuffles and things between tribes, still the highest honor was to be able to touch uh, a live enemy with your hand basically making connection huh mm -hmm. killing them mm -hmm. but and so out of that there's a ceremony that is still known and it's called killing of the enemy and uh, what this ceremony implies is that we are killing the enemy energy the enemy spirit between us and if we can kill that then you become my relative and wow, so, so it's the opposite of what we would understand in the Western world, right? Yeah, it's basically to make a relation out of something that, that's been confused by something and we consider our enemy, now we are making a relative. And basically, all of uh, the paradigm that I work with in a traditional context of therapy healing has to do with that because, again, in Western medicine, and Western philosophy, it's, it's the idea is to be adversarial. You get rid of stuff, you know, you declare war on everything. You know, in this country, they be, they're gonna probably declared war on COVID already, but yeah. the natural yeah. loss, that doesn't work. You can't do that. And so, and, and uh, again, by the teachings of this person I was telling you, that where he taught me is that you make a relationship out of everything, including the so-called sickness, because the sickness is here as a relative to show us something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this, this client, you know, during this uh, course that I was watching, and his struggle was the fact that he went to school, he was going to school, to college, and 
he wanted to go to school so he could bring the knowledge to the tribe. But then he went back to the tribe and he's still in school, but every time he goes back to the tribe and now what he sees is are people using a lot of drugs. There's a lot of, I don't know if it was heroin or crack, he was saying. They're using a lot of drugs. There's a lot of alcohol too. He said, my family is destroyed. There were, and he actually mentioned that in one year there were 16 suicides in his tribe. And he said, I am totally lost. First of all, I'm losing everyone I love and I don't know how I can help them. And it just shows how differently they look at their parents, at their community, because it's not a, it's, I'm not going to college to become rich, to have a good life for myself, to build a better right. life for myself. It's, it's so that I can bring it back and teach and bring something good back to my collective world. So that mm -hmm. just shows how differently they think. Yeah. Yeah, you, you're, you're correct. And, uh, and, the numbers you mentioned, uh, yeah, I've been familiar over the years with several communities who have had high numbers within a very short period of time. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, suicide, the rates are much, much higher with this population. And one, one thing that he mentioned, and I would love to hear your explanation on this, is that one of the reasons why, and he actually, because he was suicidal himself, and he said, you know, when, when a suicide happens in a family, this is when everybody gets together. So it's like an incentive for us. I think about that, but then I realize that it's just temporary. It's going to bring the tribe together and maybe it will bring some healing for some families because they're back collectively again, but it's just, it's just short term. But in the long term, it's very destructive. Is, is that true? Well, uh, yeah, it is very destructive. And, and I think that uh, a lot of... Uh, the responses to suicide by you know native people a lot of those responses are are colonized responses to where we bought into the western medical model and uh and, and thinking that you know it, it's something that it's not and my understanding again according to the teachings is that uh suicide itself is an entity it's a spirit and it has a consciousness and is hearing us talk right now, mm -hmm. and 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 because of that, you know, we need to understand that it, it must want something, otherwise it would be visiting. And usually, the, my understanding, what I tell people is that what it really wants, it, it wants a complete transformation. So it's a mm -hmm. spirit of transformation, but because our egos have been colonized, and we only see things in a certain way, we interpret that call to transformation 
as the death of self, as the death of the body, while in reality it's calling for a spiritual death and rebirth, which is a whole different thing. And in ceremonies, usually that's what occurs in most you know, indigenous ceremonies. It's about a death and rebirth process, but it's a mm -hmm. spiritual one so that you can still continue here and do what you signed up to do in the first place. And when people hear it like that, then it's like suicide's not a bad thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You reframe the, it, yeah. If we see it from the original teachings, then it's a call to transform. And it is basically the whole essence of Christianity, you know, the death and rebirth. Without that, no salvation, right? It's against mm -hmm. the rule. Mm -hmm. So from what you said, we understand it literally. But what suicide as an entity is saying is, there is something to be transformed in yourself or in your life. And it's just yeah. bringing your attention to that. But because we take it literally, then we want to get, get rid of the body. Yeah, because that's, that's all the ego knows. See, the, the colonized ego, that's all it knows. I mean, 300 years, 500 years ago before colonization, uh, there probably wasn't that much suicidal ideation in the first place because people understood that there's a time to transform different phases of life, you know, whether it's in adolescence into adulthood, into old age. There was always a ceremony that helped the death of the old and renewal of the new. And so there was a spiritual suicide that happened, but it was informed by the original instructions. So is, is this one of the oral teachings that have been lost over time? Yes, yeah. And, and, and of course, uh, we get educated in the Western system and then we, we learn, you know, all the good things that we do, which are useful. But then this piece isn't taught because the Western system doesn't know it either. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and this knowledge is useful for all human beings because it's the original knowledge and it doesn't belong to anybody. It comes directly from the mystery, you know, into the plant world, this world that we live in. And then we, hopefully, enough people have paid attention to where they can still understand the original meaning of some of the teachings. And I was fortunate that this old man that I told the story about for three years told me this stuff that made no sense. At the same time, I'm taking PhD courses and and here's a parallel thing wow it must be such a conflict yeah because at one point i just wanted to quit the phd but he refused to let me he says no you cannot do that which really surprised me because i thought he'd be totally okay with it and and he said uh these are the exact words he said to me he says when you're finished he says you'll have twice the power wow that's lucky you that you had him because could have yeah. been the opposite, right? Yeah. And you wouldn't be able to treat this population today, maybe if you did. Well, no, I would be. Yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing, but yeah. uh, you know, he didn't have uh, education, and so it surprised me when he really said no, because I, I I had already made the decision, and I, I was a little bit proud of myself for making the decision. And I'll never forget, you know, he couldn't move very much, but when, he, when I told him, he just barely moved his head. He just went like, for him, that was like a big no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big no, just so you don't, if you don't notice, that's what I'm saying, no, right? 
I'm yeah. glad you did. I'm glad you did. Yeah. So Eduardo, um, this is, I'm, you're talking and I'm thinking, we hear, and I know people who work with mental health, we know that the numbers of suicide are so high with indigenous people. There is so much addiction and all of that. But then what happens is we have an initiative that it's usually governmental. They come in with their groups, you know, their teams. They stay there for a few weeks and, but it, it doesn't seem to help. I mean, we look at the numbers and why does that not help? Is it because we approach them going the wrong way because it's a Western education? Yes, but there's more to that. And uh, Albert Einstein said, uh, um, you cannot correct or fix a problem with the same thing that caused the problem, right? Yeah. So if colonization is the root of suicide or, you know, some of those issues for non-Indigenous people, then how can we use colonized thinking to think we're going to go fix it? I'm, I, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. a rocket scientist, but I, I can connect those dots. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in, in 12 Steps, they have, was saying to say, you know, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. And so mm. basically, when I see therapists doing the same thing over and over and people continue being addicted and uh, well, that's insanity because it's not working. So even if you do something wrong, do something different. And, and that was the gift that was given to me by, you know, by this elder and other elders to where they say, well, why don't you say this? Why don't you do that? And and then it shape shifts, you know, the, the whole cognition, you know, just like what we talked about suicide. And then another thing that colonization does is it literally sucks the souls out of people. So if you have no soul, there's no one there to kill. And so then suicide becomes very easy because you're not really killing anybody because there's nobody there. Of course, yeah, I understand. We find that also in veteran populations, which I'm working more and more with now, where we have 22 suicides a day. And, oh, my God. And the Veterans Administration keeps doing the same thing over and over. And in the time that we're talking here, me and you, another veteran will have killed himself today. You know, 22 mm -hmm. today will happen. Mm -hmm. So my approach is let's take this somewhere else because even if, you know, if it saves one life tomorrow, then that's a good thing. But if I keep doing the same thing, then nothing will change in that. And so uh, that's, that's why I'm talking to you today so that hopefully the word gets out and if just one person sees it different, then it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. one, yeah, one person at a time. But when you say, yeah. let's do something different. So um, I would love to educate my audience on this. What would this different be? Uh, in my understanding is, for example, let's not talk diagnosis, right? right? Let's not just focus on the body because mm -hmm. there is another component that that's not being treated and that's central for this population, which is the spirit or the soul. So what else can we do? And even in this that I just mentioned, how can we, how can you give it language and, and, and talk to them in a way that they will understand? And, uh, you know, a lot of it, you know, is, is based on, on fundamental language. And because 
most Western languages, especially English, uh, is based on, on nouns, so it uh, objectifies the world. So, you know, when I say, you know, there's a man, there's a woman over there, basically that's all they can be. And most indigenous languages that I've been able to ask people about, their languages, the meaning is carried by movement, by verbs. So instead of saying there's a woman over there, well, womaning is happening over there. But see, then that can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to be that. And so in Western diagnosis, when we say to somebody, you are an alcoholic, you're a major depressive disorder, you are suicidal, and in the very next breath that they breathe in, they take in that identity. And so the way I kind of use in the English language, the way I get around that is by, is by saying it different. Basically, instead of saying you're a major depressive disorder, and I always put it in probabilistic terms. I say, maybe the spirit of sadness is visiting you. Well, that's a real mm-hmm. different way of being than, than actually becoming it. So if it's visiting you, that means it's moving, and maybe it can shapeshift or it can leave or it can do something else. And so now the patient <clears throat> can do something with that versus you are it or you're suicidal, well, maybe the spirit of transformation is visiting you, it's trying to tell you something. Well, that's actually interesting. Like, what could he be trying to tell me? Mm-hmm. You know, I better stick around to find out because if I kill myself, then I'll miss out on whatever it's trying to say. And so using that kind of language to shapeshift the metaphor and, and not just for indigenous people, I see Euro-Americans all the time, and they prefer this way of talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I read that, and you wrote about suicide is that sometimes suicide can be the internalized hatred of the oppressor, yeah. but you internalize it, and then you do it to yourself. You, you self-harm and I actually, it reminds me of Freud, right? That's what, when he talks about melancholy. Uh, yeah, grief and melancholy, I believe is the name of, of, of the writing. And he said, yeah, that's what suicide is. And also depression, he says, melancholy at the time is what we call depression now. But that's what depression is. You, you may have hatred towards someone, but you internalize it. And let's say it's your, it's, your, it's your parents, right? We see that happen all the time with our clients. They cannot fathom the idea of hating their parents, so they hate themselves. They internalize that. So how can we address that? Well, in, you know, because a lot of times the ideation comes out of trauma. I mean, all of it, you know, historical trauma, uh, individual personal trauma, and, and going again back to the old teachings, the indigenous ways of seeing things, when, when a human being traumatizes another one, it could be personal or it could be collective, like by, by you know, a, a military general. Um, there's an intention that happens in the heart, mind of the perpetrator. And so when they do whatever they do, the physical violence or whatever kind of violence they do, you know, there is a physical and psychological component to that violence that the body starts healing itself by bruising or bleeding. 
the psyche, you know, you can go to your Freudian analyst and then you can resolve that. But over the, you know, initially when I started working, I thought we were doing that and it's still not getting well. And that's where I went to the teachings of my teacher. And he says, that's, there's another component. And when somebody commits trauma, they also commit a spiritual intrusion. And so the only word that I can use that makes sense, it becomes an act of sorcery. You are literally, the perpetrator just blows a part of their spirit into oh, them. I and see. The victim takes that first breath, and now he or she's in here, and now it creates a life of its own in the unconscious because it wants to resolve itself. It, it wants to take care of its guilt, but because we don't know that's what's going on, we think it's all me. And we take on the guilt of the perpetrator and we take on all of that to where eventually we, we just become hopeless and we just don't want to be here. You know, and, and veterans that I talk to, they understand that. Victims of sexual abuse absolutely understand that because they see themselves leave their body uh, and they see what's happening from somewhere else. And so we call it depersonalization and we have all those fancy terms. But I think yeah. we need to use some of the older language like sorcery and your spirit jumps out of your body and people know what that means. It doesn't matter who you are. People might think it's weird, but if it happened to them, they understand it. And over the years when I talk to people who've been traumatized about that, they say, basically tell me, well, how did you know? Hmm. But it's, it has never been validated for them. Basically, Western therapy takes them as the patient and now they need to be fixed right and that's the whole idea they need to change behavior and you know, all, a lot of that is good but until we we heal the internal perpetrator that, that act of sorcery that intruded in us it doesn't get enough work with people in their 70s that have been struggling for 60 years and done everything you know the therapy the medical everything and it's still there until something happens spiritually and ceremonially to be able to take care of this negative energy. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean when uh, you say never stop asking why? You know, I had the teacher, Dr. Dempsey, he used to say, slice it thin, slice it thin, just keep going. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. and the most basic question, you know, because uh, at some point, and this is, you know, the, the whole Paulo Freire method, right? Where you just go ask something really simple to change consciousness, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he uses yeah. that fancy Portuguese word. <laughs> what, is the, like what is the Portuguese word? Do you know the Portuguese word? Uh, well, it's consensación or something like that. I, you know, <laughs> I've just seen it written. I never heard it said. How do you say it? <laughs> I, I don't know what, what word it is, con, consensus, no, I don't know what it, you mean. Basically, is what he's meaning is consciousness, a, cha a shifting in consciousness oh. by asking. Consciencia, consciencia, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, yesterday I had a friend of mine call and he was asking for help because his daughter has been, as he said, acting out and... And this intern, you're talking about the internalized anger. 
and then you hurt yourself when you want to actually to hurt somebody else. And he was telling me, I don't know, we don't know what to do anymore. And um, just by the symptoms of what he described, the first question I asked was, was she sexually abused as a child? Because it was so obvious that she was hurting herself because she wanted to sexually hurt somebody else. Yeah. So we, we see this in patients all the time. But as you said, they don't know. They don't know. They have learned, as, especially when, it, when they're kids, they believe it's their fault, that they did something to deserve it, and they grow up with the shame yeah. of never talking about it. There's so much secret. Yeah, but the way I see it, and that's what gave me the clue into this, is that that is the shame of the perpetrator. Because the perpetrator, even though they're still acting deep somewhere in whatever soul is left, they know this is wrong but then they pass it on to the victim mm-hmm. and victim after victim. And, uh, and now they think they're, they're wrong. And until we heal the energy itself and releasing then the perpetrator also, ideally if the perpetrator did the work, then it would really heal the energy itself. Uh, because until we heal the spirit of it, it just continues to move, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing you say is use humor. It's very important when you address this population. Yeah. Yeah, why is that? Why is humor important for indigenous people? Well, I think for all people, because uh, humor itself is, is medicine. I mean, if you're depressed and you start laughing, at least for a few seconds, a shapeshift happened to where now it's like, whoa, what was that? And, and over the years, especially working with interns and, and myself, if I'm seeing somebody who's really sad and I don't make him laugh during the session, uh, I've done something really wrong, even though I might have been brilliant. Otherwise, if they did not laugh, and sometimes I have to really pull out my best material to make them laugh because, you know, it's hard. Yeah, it is. to laugh, but it's possible. And so I would really advise therapists all over is to uh instead of doing the blank stare that they think because mm. i don't think freud did that anyway no for I, I doubt i can't see freud ever doing that really yeah he was more human than the freudians and so yeah. you know <laughs> for he, sure <laughs> he used the the humor which is a natural life-giving force that dispels negative energy and i i understand it in europe back when there was a lot of demon possessions happening back in the Middle Ages. The, the church got overwhelmed, but too many requests for exorcisms. So eventually the priest started telling people, well, why don't you just go home and tell the demons a joke? Make them laugh. Because the demons want to be taken seriously. And if they're not taken seriously, they don't like that. You know? And so now mm. they're laughing, and so they, they shift also. Yeah, and then that's a cha- that's a challenge for for us therapists because the, you know the client comes in and they're it's it's a very difficult of course conversation to have when they're suicidal and I I actually I I do the same you do if my if my client doesn't laugh in a session I did something wrong I have the same uh, 
the same impression that you, you have to get them out of that state because that state, they already know it really well. So show them something different and also show them that there is a range of emotions that you can feel. It doesn't mean that you're there and, and that's all you can, you can have and express. Yeah, and then I also have them have a conversation with the spirit of suicide right there in the session. And, and even the ones that have been very suicidal get really a little bit upset. It's like, now? I said, well, you're thinking of doing it. What's the big deal? Just talking to it. I mean, and they're like, whoa. And then uh, they say words to it. And now, see, they're in relationship versus mm-hmm. uh, being a victim. Now they're in relationship. The ex- and, and, and you externalize it. Yeah, and the protocol is to identify yourself, tell it your name and your parents' name, grandparents, as far back as you can go. Then you ask the spirit of suicide, well, what's your name? And who are your parents? And who are your grandparents? As far as back as... And then you give it a gift. And if you give it a gift, now you're in a relationship. Now that spirit has to say something back to you. So it'll respond either in a dream or in a synchronicity or in some way it'll respond back. And now that becomes really interesting to the patient because like, gee, I wonder what it's going to tell me. Hmm. So not willing to wait because now they're in relationship mm-hmm. versus getting a contract that doesn't usually mean a whole lot because they know what to say to you. You know, yeah. and if yeah. they want to do it, they're going to go do it right after they tell you they're not. But if we use some of this ancient metaphor, the way I tell I understand it is weird enough to be interesting. Mm-hmm. And the soul understands it. Yeah. You know, you were, you were saying this, and I'm thinking about someone I interviewed for the podcast, and she, she has had suicidal ideation most of her life, started in early teens. And she said exactly what you just mentioned. She said, I have the way I have learned to deal with this is to talk to it. I talked to my ideation and, and she actually teaches that to her patients because now she's a counselor and she tells them, say, thank you. I know that you're trying to protect me. That's, that's, that's what you're trying to do. It's like what we call bad emotions, right? They, they all have a function. So I know you're trying to protect me. Thank you. Thank you for that. And he, she just starts a conversation and by externalizing that and seeing that I am not it, it yeah. changes everything. Yeah, and imagine if she gives it a gift. Mm-hmm. See, because, yeah, yeah the, my first law of the universe is that there's no free lunch. So if that energy is teaching us something, we need to give something back. Otherwise, it'll take something because mm-hmm. that's how the universe is wired. It's wired to be in balance. And so by giving it a gift, now we're in real relationship with each other. And so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It changes everything. Eduardo, thank you so much for your, temp- for your time. I was going to say tempo well, in Portuguese because I said Eduardo. <laughs> Not the American well, way. <laughs> I, I, I just said Eduardo. Thank you for your tempo. Tempo is time in Portuguese. Oh, tem- oh tempo. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I so, think it's just because I said your name with with the Brazilian in the Brazilian way. It's like here when I say uh, my name, I say in Portuguese it's Paula, but I, I've stopped doing that because people always go, "What?" <laughs> I said Paula. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Oh. 
as long as you as long as you can repeat it that's fine well you know i'm offering a kind of a, a smoke offering here for for the words that we said you know for that spirit of uh, transformation paula for mm -hmm. you and your work and that you can be blessed by the mystery you know as you take this word wherever you're going to take it so. thank you thank you that's lovely thank you very much thank you for being with us and i hope we have educated my my audience a little bit okay. and i'll make sure that i have all the links for you know if someone wants to contact you uh, if you want to say something or a website, but I will have it on my notes, your website, and also your beautiful book. Do you want to talk about your book a little bit? Uh, yeah, the, that's the second edition. You know, that book was written again accidentally. I was, I was not intending to write anything. I was told all through graduate school that I couldn't write. And so uh, that's in the second edition uh, has a, a chapter on veterans. And of course, has you know in that section deals with suicide and and it's a basically a, a conversation so it's what i say what they say so it's very hands-on and so I, th I think people appreciate that uh you know that kind of transparency versus mm -hmm. theory and yeah. all of that Jarg jargons uh, that nobody understands yeah what is yeah. the title of the book just so my audience listens healing the soul wound so healing the soul wound, so healing the deeper aspect, not just the symptoms, but the soul itself. Mm -hmm. And that has a whole history to it. But uh, yeah, so I, I appreciate uh, you doing this. And yeah, let me know how you are and how, how you perceive keep, it. Keep uh, in uh, touch and I'll let you know when this is posted. Thank you for your knowledge. And as a veteran, thank you for your service. Well, thank you for saying that. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>